This is a Federal News Network podcast. Discussions about the federal workforce rarely go three minutes before somebody laments the need to get young people into government. Yet three quarters of the federal workforce is over 40, a much higher percentage than in the private sector. So it may be no surprise that age discrimination complaints in government are more common than they are in the private sector. American University professor Bob Tobias has been studying the federal workforce for decades, and he joins me now to discuss more about this. And Bob, a perfect topic for two old farts like us to be talking about, <laughs> still working well into their, at least in my case, well into the 60s. I don't know about you, but age discrimination is something that gets overlooked, I think, in all of the other competing victimhood stories these days. Well, yes. And, and, and as you suggest, Tom, it is interesting that 74% of the workforce, federal workforce is 40 or older versus um, 54% in the private sector. So federal employees work longer and also continue to receive pay increases to up to 65 when the, when the average pay is $91,940. So federal employees stay longer and they get paid pretty well. But at the same time, they're filing more age discrimination complaints. Right. So the reason is not because of termination or failing to get raises then because of age. It's some other effect they're feeling because of their age. Yes, I, I think that's right. And what's interesting is that if you're a federal manager, only 1% of the complaints filed re result in age discrimination findings. But if you're a federal person over 40, that means that 99% of the, of the complaints that are filed are dismissed. Now, if you're a federal manager, you'd say, all right, no discrimination found, get back to work. But that fails to address the basis for the charge itself. And it seems to me that that has to be addressed or more and more complaints get filed. Well, what would be things that people would perceive being done to them because of their age? If you're not let go and you're not denied any further raises under the schedule system, for example, then what can managers do or what do they do? Are we aware of that could be perceived as age discrimination by the person feeling that perception? Evaluations, promotions, retaliation are the are the primary complaints that are filed, but also the EEO complaint process is misused. And people file general complaints that don't rise to the level of discrimination, but are problems in the workplace that have to be addressed. So, for example, a manager could just give someone a easier assignment that's less demanding or less intellectually acceptable to them simply on the assumption they can't handle the tough stuff anymore. That could be a case. That certainly could be a case. And it, it seems to me that this idea of solving employee complaints ought be something that supervisors are invested in. And if you look at the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey, what you see is that those agencies who score highest have fewer complaints and more settlements than those who score lower. And so it makes sense, right? If I am a federal manager who creates an environment where trust exists, where collaboration exists, where learning exists, where success exists, there are going to be fewer complaints. And if one is filed, it gets settled. The real question is, why aren't those agencies 
who are who have traditionally not scored high, providing the kind of leadership development that's necessary to create an environment where EEO complaints aren't filed, they're settled, and more importantly, increased productivity occurs. We're speaking with Bob Tobias. He's a professor in the key executive leadership program at American University. And it could be that bosses, you know, are getting all of this training on what to say, what not to say to various people groups that are identified as marginalized in some cases or discriminated against traditionally. And we've all had that. It's happening in the private sector also. But I wonder if it's easier to be cavalier about age now because of all of these other sensitivities that managers have to worry about. So maybe they let their guard down and say, hey, hey, you old guy, uh, we're going to move your desk in the hall or something like that. I I imagine that must happen somewhere. It may be, Tom, but I think it's even more fundamental than that. It's It's me as a leader. How do I see you as a person working in my group? Am I making the connection with you where you choose to give me your discretionary energy? Now, if you're choosing to give me your discretionary energy because I've created this kind of an environment, you're not filing complaints. Most leaders don't have a clue about how to do that. Well, where can they learn to do that? I mean, how do you get that skill? Because as you say, that discretionary energy It's almost like love. You need to have an infinite amount of it so that it stretches over everyone that reports to you. Uh, you All right. Everyone who reports to you could make the choice to give you their discretionary energy. And in those agencies where there's high engagement, that's what people choose to do. Now, in answer to your question, five or six years ago, the um, Merit Systems Protection Board did a study that was focused on people in the SES, but they said where leadership development programs exist and members of the SES went to those programs, FEV scores increased. So the programs are available. American University has these kinds of programs, but, you know, agencies don't invest in them. Right. The implication here is that some people are natural, dynamic leaders that everyone feels that they have the empathy from and are willing to give their discretionary energy. I think we've all had, if we're lucky, one or two bosses like that in our careers. Everyone else, you need to be schooled in this kind of thing, and these are skills that a manager can learn if he or she so chooses. They can be, and they're more than skills. I mean, a skill is I can manage the technology. Leadership development is personal development so that I can actually engage with you that I can create a trusting work environment. I might want to do it. I might not know how to do it. And I'm suggesting that more leaders ought know how to do it. And also, I think it's just a simple matter of listening and understanding the room. And you can't really, I've learned over the years, you can't judge a person's, I don't know how to put it, their flexibility, their ability to learn new things, their ability to try things based on age. I've known 80-year-olds with 10 times more energy and imagination than some 20-year-olds. So it's not really a function of age. It's a function of that person. And you need to be able to adjust your style, not to the age or whatever else you perceive on the outside of the person, but what they show you from their actions, who they are on the inside. I couldn't say it better, Tom. And sort of the other problem is an awful lot of managers spend all of their time doing and not much of their time leading. So they're doing things instead of spending the time that you suggest they ought be spending 
listening to those they try to lead. And I will say at least government has one advantage because you don't have to rise that high in the hierarchy before you get a secretary or an administrative assistant, which have probably 90 percent of that job have disappeared from the private sector. You know, computers have turned everyone into a secretary. And so, unfortunately, a lot of managers spend time on tasks that, frankly, an assistant could do better, but they have to do because they don't have one. Well, there's that too, Tom. But if I'm if I'm a leader, my job is to focus on doing those things which cannot be delegated. And one of the things that cannot be delegated is creating a relationship with you, a person that I lead. And we'll leave it right there. Good advice. Bob Tobias is a professor in the key executive leadership program, and I emphasize those words, at American University. As always, thanks so much. Thank you, Tom. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on your schedule. Subscribe at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Melissa Bradley, the founder and managing partner at 1863 Ventures, an investment company focused on bridging entrepreneurship and racial equity and accelerating new majority entrepreneurs from high potential to high growth. Additionally, Melissa is co-founder of Venture Back Eureka, a community where small businesses gain unprecedented access to the expertise needed to grow their businesses and has more than 20 years of entrepreneurship, investment, and leadership experience. Melissa, welcome and thank you for being here. My pleasure, thank you for having me. Who is the first person that you remember looking up to as a leader and what was it about them that inspired you? So there are actually two people. Um, The first person personally was my mom. Uh, She was a single parent. And what I realized is that she was the leader of our household, but she was also the leader of our community. Um, She was a staunch advocate for children's rights in public schools, making sure that we got a quality education. She was a staunch advocate around rights for renters. Um, We were not in a financial position that we actually ever owned a home, uh, but she made sure that people who lived in various types of housing we were in regular housing, the people who were in regular housing, public housing, she made sure that their rights were advocated for um, and really just always kind of looked out for, I'll, I'll use air quotes, the little guy, while, although we were the little guy. Uh, and then I would say she was a huge advocate of older folks um, as part of her job. She worked during the week uh, in a full-time job and then clean houses on the weekend, but also took care of elderly folks and a staunch advocate for elderly rights. Um, So that was probably the the first leader. And then I would say the second leader that really came about professionally was a woman named Crystal Crystal Gaskins, uh, who actually ran a headhunting temporary firm that I ended up spending about a year at, but quickly realized that was not my calling. But in a world where you are constantly managing the powers that be that want to hire all these people and move people around and the folks who are sometimes in vulnerable positions and obviously seeking a job, she would always manage to treat everyone with the, with the ultimate respect. And part of the business was actually um, managing hotels and getting service workers to show up. 
And that's a tough job, right, to try to motivate people who barely are getting paid enough under not great conditions. Um, and so she taught me three things. She taught me how to be a motivator and that recognizing leadership is not mandating, but motivating. She taught me that leadership is not just reporting up, but also reflecting and supporting those who may be underneath you from a hierarchical structure. And she also taught me that leadership was not about money, uh, but it was about producing positive outcomes for whoever your customers were. And if you did that, then obviously the money would come. How would you describe your leadership style and how has that developed over the years? Hmm. I would describe it, hashtag work in progress. Um, it, it has evolved over the years, I think, two ways. One, the more people I've been exposed to in leadership positions have certainly helped me pivot and make adjustments. And then certainly as my leadership roles have elevated and probably as the more people I've been responsible for has elevated, uh, you know, certainly being managing partner and founder of 1863 Ventures, we manage a lot of people. We have actually tripled our staff this year. And so we went from three people to oh, actually 12 people plus and growing. Uh, and we went from a couple hundred members to almost 10,000 members. And that's a big deal. Um, I, so my leadership style has evolved in terms of more people that I have reporting to me. I think it's, I, I focus on autonomy. I focus, I'm, I'm very clear that my role is to help other people be successful. Uh, I do set very clear deadlines. I am try to do a good job of kind of projecting what is the overall mission and vision, what are the KPIs and OKRs that we need to hit. And then I feel like I need to get out the way. I need not be a micromanager. I need to recognize, particularly since COVID, that people have kids, they have lives, they have ways that they know how they perform best. And so we now have people who work for me all over the world. And as long as we made our deliverables, I don't need to know that you're sitting in a cubicle or sitting at your computer from nine to five. Um, and that's because I've been at those nine to five jobs where I literally had nothing to do, but I knew I was told I had to be in the office. Uh, and it just seemed like a complete waste of time. And so I'm really laser focused on outcomes and productivity and advancing the vision and mission and not on what does it look like? Because I think a successful work looks different for everyone. And then I would say more externally, as we now have grown to lots of members and we have a social media presence and I talk to people, I'm mindful that the, the probably the most important from an external uh, perspective on my leadership is that I am mindful that I am modeling not just for myself, but particularly for other leaders and particularly Black women and certainly gay Black women, uh, you know, there are not a lot of us. Um, you know, you mentioned that I'm a co-founder of Eureka, so I'm fortunate enough to be in the first 30 or so Black women that have been supported through venture capital, which is a sad statistic, but for a different topic. And so I'm mindful that people are always watching me. And I would say that certainly as a Black woman, people are always watching you, not always for the better and cheering you on, but waiting for you to make a mistake and slip up. And so I'm mindful that when I step into a room or I show up somewhere, I'm not just representing Melissa Bradley and my immediate family. I'm representing all of my members and potentially sending a single effect of what other people are going to expect as Black women. And the final thing I would say that definitely has evolved since now that I'm over 50 uh, is that I feel a much greater freedom to say what's on my mind um, than I did before. And I, and I do that. I probably said what was on my mind before, but in a way that was reflective of my frustration and anger with the system. And now I say it with the, expect, with the level of calmness and the expectation that it's important that we are honest around 
what do black communities experience and to phrase it in a way not based on anger, but really using data. And so I would say I've consistently been a staunch advocate for black and brown communities, but has evolved from being very reactive and saying, well, don't do this and don't do that to saying, let me explain to you why I think it's important that we take this up and really letting the facts drive the discussion. Some of that probably comes from the fact that I've worked in two presidential administrations and we all know that that just goes back and forth and oftentimes based on rhetoric and not fact. And having six kids in a world of social media, I think there's something, the, the art of, of conversation based on facts and data has devolved to uh, opinions and pundits. And, and I think that's a challenge around leadership because your job is not, in my mind to convince people but to inform people and allow them to make decisions for themselves i i saw you on a post uh, with a washington post um uh interview and it, it you were amazing and it, it's interesting to listen to you describe what you just said because i could see all of that reflected in how you responded there and um make one other quick uh comment about as a company grows, WEPA is growing as well. And you are so spot on. We have, as, as leaders, we have to let go and trust those people that work for us and empower them to do their job and then let them roll. And that's not always easy. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.